As you can tell probably by now, I'm one of those people with the kind of mind who likes lists. So I have another list to share with you tonight. I've talked and we've all referred to the three coverings, kalesas, veils, poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. We've also talked about the five hindrances, the five obstacles that get in our way, the wanting and the not wanting, which are in those three kalesas, the agitation and restlessness, the dullness and sleepiness and doubt, not knowing. We've also, I have talked about the seven awakening factors, the mindfulness, making it all happen. I was thinking the other day of mindfulness is like the key to the car. Without the key, you're not going anywhere. And then the, all the rest of the journey takes place, but the key is the central piece. And so the energizing factors of, of uh, interest or curiosity and the energizing, keeping going, doing, courageous, willingness, happiness, joy, joyful interest, and then the three calming, calm concentration and equanimity, which I, in my mind, um, crystallized to energy enough or too much, calm enough or too much. If there's too much energy, we're in this agitation of the hindrance. If there's too much calm and it becomes dull, we're in, we're in the hindrance of sloth and torpor. These things are just layers or ways of seeing it this way, seeing it this way, but it's all relevant to each other. So this other list I'm going to talk about tonight, the five spiritual faculties, is it's just another overlay, another way, not that different, of explaining what we're doing. And I'll describe these five, and then there's two in particular that I'm going to talk about tonight. Mindfulness is the key in the car. Absolutely, that's there, right in the middle. There's faith. There's energy, the same one that's in this, right in the middle of the energizing factors of the awakening factors, the doing, the applying ourselves, the enthusiasm. Mindfulness in the middle. Concentration, which is right in the middle of the calming th three in, in the seven awakening factors, concentration, steadiness of mind, and wisdom. So in my mind, I see the, the middle being the mindfulness, the seesaw, as I did with the other ones. On one side is the energizing of energy and the calming of concentration. And on the ends of this particular five set of five, faith in the beginning, mindfulness in the end. I want to talk tonight about faith and wisdom. Did I say wisdom in the end? Good, because I'd meant to say faith in the beginning, wisdom at the other end. So these two, faith and wisdom, rather general kind of dry terms, maybe. Faith, I don't actually resonate particularly with the word faith as a translation, but I want to talk about the area of um, really what we believe and how believing what we believe is in fact um, really the under, underlying energy for everything we do. So what do we believe in? If we believe in something, we do it. 
So this is actually more, I would like to think of this as an exploration and uh, an inquiry for ourselves. In your lives, as well as in practice, but let's say in your lives, where do you spend your time? What do you think is important? What do you um, give your energy to? If you give your energy to something, it's because you must believe that it means something. It brings you something. It carries something for you. Where do we spend our, uh, what do we talk about a lot? And think about and read about? Where do we spend our money? We don't spend a lot of money on things that we don't think are worth anything. So obviously where we actually put ourselves has some meaning for us. It's an interesting way of looking at who are you and what really do you want in your life? What's valuable, what's meaningful? So it's really all about your values. Then there's things like when you're in stress, when you're under duress, then what's meaningful for you? What do you go to? The fridge? Is that helpful to you? Company, perhaps? Some old habit or addiction or perhaps a ritual of some kind to give you some sense of connection with something sacred? Some of what we do and where we put our energy isn't so wholesome, actually, and some really is. And even that can change depending on so many other factors. But these are really useful questions to ask ourselves, not to find answers, but to be aware of, to keep being interested in exploring. Do you believe in um, the power of metta? I'm sure many of you are learning that there is value to this. I certainly had Reasonable confidence, I had confidence, that metta was effective when I'm stuck at the border, as I told you the last time. Immediate, clear, apparent benefit I experienced directly. Wishes, blessings, do you believe in these things? Do they help you? Do they help orient you towards what you know is reliable? What do you trust in? How about yourself? Do you have a sense of trust in yourself, your own worthiness, or is that at times unreliable? Do you tell yourself that you believe that you're not good enough, or that you can't do things, or you're this kind of a person? How much do you actually convince yourself of something that's a belief? How much of it is actually some wholesome belief about yourself? And maybe not just yourself, but your abilities, your capabilities, your potential, for instance. Is this a meaningful exploration for you? One of the reflections, of course, is that we will sooner or later leave this whole plane. And how will we be remembered? What did we do? What did we apply ourselves to that will linger for a while? What aroma will we leave? One of the things I like to think about is the, the effect, sort of the idea of karma, of our activities is that we're like the boats going along and we're leaving a wake of some kind. 
the disturbance in the sea behind us because of our passage is like that's our, what we're leaving behind. What will be remembered, we be remembered for? We'll be remembered for what we believe in because that's what we do the most. Epitaphs after we've gone. One of the ones I like is uh, on some gravestone somewhere is, got everything done, died anyway. <laughs> Another one that's not quite so funny, but I guess it's a joke is, told you I was sick. <laughs> You're awake. It's funny how we have wakes for people who've recently died, and I think that's the right word. I like that word. Hmm. So um, our values are revealed in our actions. We can learn about ourselves by what we do with ourselves. Spend our time. You do, of course, all value highly developing your inner life, coming to understanding about how you work, what are the mechanisms that work inside your particular conglomeration or heap or else you wouldn't be doing all this work. And then it isn't just you and your own inner workings, but in, within the whole setting of the Dharma. There are pieces to this which you can relate to more than others, no doubt. What aspects of the practice do you actually have faith in? What aspects of, or what ways have you experienced truth that you know you trust, that do inform you? What have been some of your insights? You know, we've had these many discussions in our meetings over the, over the course of your practice, but when you have some insight, there's always that feeling of like, you really know that's true. And usually you already knew it was true before, but you really, it's like, of course, that feeling of course. You can trust those things, they're yours. No one could say that's not true for you when you've had something like this, some understanding in your particular terms, your particular life, your particular experience. What about the potential of human beings to wake up? Is this something you really hold dear? How deeply is this in you? Or how much is this a wish, maybe, or an idea? There's no right or wrong here. But what actually do you place your heart upon? We talk about the refuges. This is what we mean. What do you actually, can you feel, orients you to towards the light in a way that nourishes your life while you're here. It's just a little quote. I really like this little quote. It's written by uh, Barry Lopez, who wrote a book called Arctic Dreams. No culture has yet solved the dilemma each has faced with the growth of a conscious mind. How to live a moral and compassionate existence when one is fully aware of the blood and horror inherent in all life, when one finds darkness not only in one's culture but within oneself. If there is a stage at which an individual life becomes truly adult, it must be when one grasps the irony in its unfolding and accepts the responsibility for a life lived in the midst of such paradox. One must live in the middle of contradiction, because if all contradiction were eliminated at once, life would collapse. There are simply no answers to some of the great pressing questions. You continue to live them out, making your life a worthy expression of leaning into the light. 
the Buddha suggested that we say five, in his listing mind, statements every day. I am of the nature to become ill. Nothing and no one can prevent me from becoming ill. I am of the nature to grow old. Nothing and no one can prevent me growing old. I am of the nature to die. Nothing and no one can prevent me from dying. I am of the nature to lose everything I hold dear to me sooner or later. Nothing and no one can prevent me being separated from these dear things. My karma, the fruits or wake from my actions, is my one true possession. Nothing and no one can separate me from this. Because of the motivation, Howie was talking about this a couple of nights ago, the motivation that comes from really remembering these true things. Can we actually trust these things? Can we trust them in a way that's helpful, that's not just scary and depressing, but actually valuable for our inner journey? Here's a little poem by Hafiz about dying. Death is a favor to us, but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in the tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks, and as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel, cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. One of the things, of course, that we gain the more we look, the more we see, the more we understand, the more we discover about ourselves and others and life is a sense of um, confidence. And this is played out for us over and over as we have our various experiences in life and provides with us a sense of, of, um, well, just trust in our capabilities as they grow. I had a very stark um, realization of this, and it was uh, 10 or 11 years ago now, actually, time's going by. I had a really severe car crash. And uh, as car crashes are, it was completely out of the blue, and I was, you know, one moment toodling along, and the next moment, I had actually just fallen asleep briefly for half a moment because I was jet-lagged, having returned from a European flight the night before. And... um, I was badly injured, and I was in a lot of pain and a lot of... It was awful. And um, because I had, among other things, knocked the steering wheel with my face, they didn't want to give me too heavy a dose of any kind of pain relief because they didn't know if there was any bleeding in my cranium or anything like that. And so they gave me some minimal pain relief, but I would, I'd, really, I'd shattered my, my uh, hip, I dislocated my leg, broken my hip, my pelvis, and 
miscellaneous other things. And the fact that I knew to and clung to being just with what was happening, and just holding steady and not letting myself go into, oh my God, and freaking out, freaking myself out, was the most unbelievable resource. And I know I would have been way more freaked had I not had already a number of years of practice. Something like that was a very graphic example, but um, very evident that I, 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 there was a stability in there in spite of it all that, that I know is there, that is know is my support, is something I have great faith in. So these are the big questions in life. John O'Donohue, as I like to quote him, Irishman who died relatively recently, just this few months ago, this search for meaning is as ancient as the awakening of the first question. It is as new and urgent as the question that is troubling you now. I will talk more about how we develop faith and how faith and wisdom work together, but I just wanted to introduce it. And I want to introduce now wisdom and what we mean by wisdom. There's facts, there's information, there's pieces of information, bits of knowledge. As we become wise, it's a process. So that's just an accumulation of separate bits, which sooner or later start to become cohesive. And so we have like a body of knowledge. We can say that we know something, having taken in enough input at some time having passed. So we then, we have knowledge. And we know a lot, actually, of course. But wisdom is another whole step beyond. Knowledge is fact and information and it's often opinion and it's a lot of belief and many times assumptions. Wisdom is when the facts, the information, the ideas have somehow cooked in us over time and they have become integrated to the point that they actually are what informs how we behave. Our behavior is illuminated by our understanding. So, for instance, we may know a lot about, let's just say something, I know things come and go. I totally understand, so I would say, Anicca. But do I behave all the time as though I know it? Is wisdom, is this a wisdom or is it knowledge? If I behave with non-attachment that in a moment, that's wisdom. But if I behave, I really need something, or I really regret the fact that it's broken or gone or I've lost it, that's not very wise. That's knowledge, not wisdom. So wisdom is this integration of understanding that has become part of one's fabric, you know, part of one's behaving part of one's conscious behavior. So we may have knowledge in a conscious way, but we may have some unconscious other things like fear. We may know that it's irrational and, and not appropriate to be afraid of something or other, and yet we still are afraid of something. We haven't the wisdom 
to have integrated the knowledge in that case. So we're always in the middle of this process of understanding and having it become cooked in us deep enough to actually be guiding principle that we can rely on. And this is what we're developing as we do this, all this work. This is the process we're all in. Thomas Merton, life is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be lived. There's that uh, quote that I wrote, I already spoke about William Blake's about he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. Who, who, he who kisses joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. When we're wise, we can kiss joy as it flies and let it fly. We don't just not feel it, we can kiss it. But there's nothing more. A kiss is such a temporary moment. So how does this wisdom mature in us? How does faith help it? How do they help each other? How do these two work together? It's like there's a continuum, the way I see it. When there is no understanding, no knowledge, and no faith, no trust, there's confusion, there's doubt, there's ignorance, bias, all the very limited aspects that we know, that we exhibit, that we live with. That's the hindrance, doubt. Don't know, don't understand, what about? When we're in a state of doubt, I often use the word wheel spinning, because it's like we don't know what to do, how to do it, where to go. What we do oftentimes, is that we ask questions, which is actually wisdom trying to function in us, to help us, because we don't know, so we need to know more. We need some understanding, we need some guidance, we need someone else's suggestions, or we, we need to keep asking, to keep looking, because we're not sure. There's a stuckness. If we're in doubt, and we have no faith at all, and we have no wisdom either, and so we, we're in this state of confusion. When particularly this applies to our, our uh, practice, our inner life, our spiritual contemplations, we don't move, we, we hesitate. This is also wisdom in a way. When we, if we don't, we're not sure about something, it's actually quite foolish. It's not wise to go plunging in to something blindly. This is called blind faith. If we have absolutely no sense of faith and we're really in doubt, we are hesitant. We can't move. We need to do something about it to understand. But we don't want to get so much faith and enthusiasm about something without enough understanding because that's really dangerous. We're really vulnerable. We know all kinds of stories of gullible people who've been taken advantage by others, you know, promised things that weren't true. I don't know, I've been getting these things. I know people get them. These letters on the internet that somebody's got several million dollars in a bank account, they just need your bank account, (laughs) they can transfer. (laughs) As if it's believable. But, you know, there may be some people who would believe that. I mean, 
you know, there's, there's the risk of putting your faith in somebody who then lets you down, who actually isn't what they promised, you know. This gets very difficult and very serious in spiritual circles when somebody is elevated and, you know, assumed to be something and then their humanity comes seeping out in some area. It can be very shattering, of course, if there is blind faith, if there isn't any sense of discriminating caution. Too much faith and not enough wisdom. We need not just no faith and we need not just faith. We need a certain amount of trust, but there's also got to be hand in hand with some understanding. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Look before you leap. The fool in the tarot card. Tra-la-la-la-la, just about to drop off a cliff. Not enough wisdom at all. We know that. We need both. With wisdom... If we have no wisdom, then we're foolish. We have faith, perhaps, with no wisdom. That can be dangerous. It's the same area of having faith without wisdom. The other thing about if we don't really know, and we're in that um, confused state, is um, we can't actually start to practice. When there isn't any sense of understanding, we won't begin to do this. We may think we're doing it. We may just be sitting there thinking, uh, just sitting here is good but it actually our practice can't develop because it needs to be guided by a certain amount of understanding however on the other hand if there's a lot of knowing and a lot of knowledge and a lot of facts that can actually impede us because we can end up trying to accumulate so much information write down so many things read so many books try and figure out so many people's words end up going to this teacher and this teacher and try this technique and this technique we can get completely overwhelmed with all the facts and never actually move into applying ourselves to anything this is equally a a hamper for our progress And some people have the tendency to trust and not to want to know a lot. And some people want to know a lot and have no trust. And somewhere in between we need to go. And you know for yourself what's your tendency. And even then it's not as simple as that. In my particular experience of the Dharma, I didn't listen. I didn't ask any questions. I didn't... For some reason, it just was the way it happened. The certain circumstances, the particular combination of me and that particular teacher... The situation in my life, I was going to practice basically just to cope with the stresses of a life. Like my life, which was an average sort of a life, but it was stressful. I was a midwife on call outside the law. Um, I was a single mother. You know, I had to spend, I don't know how many hours a day, uh, not a day, uh, 16 times three-hour ferries, three times 16 hours a month on a ferry to get from my home to many of the clients in the city juggling child care and being there for people and sleeplessness and all the chaos of it. That's an average, you know, kind of stuff. But it was busy and demanding and emotionally draining to some degree. At times I'd be really tired. So I'd go off and meditate every time I could get away, you know, when I could work out the schedule of it, one or two retreats a year, just to get calm, just to cope, to just be really steady, to feel grounded, to settle down. I wasn't really listening to the Dharma and how it all worked. And I did that for quite a number of years. And I think it was great. 
It, it wasn't a problem. I wasn't trying to figure anything out. It wasn't consuming a lot of my time, but I was, you know, trusting that this is useful and discovering that in simple ways, I was more skillful in situations. I didn't get so upset when in argument, or you know, I could I could hold more steady if I was in the throes of somebody's labor with them and they were all upset. And I found that I was much more able to to stay stable with them and reassuring. This was, in fact, really helping me, but I didn't understand about five hindrances and seven factors of awakening and five spiritual thises and thats and, you know, what it all was and what does emptiness mean. And I never even thought about all of that. But what I did for these years was actually develop a mind that became quite steady and that was able then to start looking more clearly about what this were. So then as I began to encounter the teachings in ways that I was able to relate to and start asking, I could start really seeing a lot. A lot started making sense for me. I actually liked doing it that way. I didn't have to deal with confusion and wondering and hanging myself up and trying to figure it all out before going ahead. So who knows if I had known more, if I would have done the same. We never know these things. That's how it unfolded for me though. Not a lot of wisdom for a while. And just more of a quiet wisdom coming from the clarity of the mind getting calmer, more focused. Hmm. So one of the things we need to be aware of, the traps of the Western mind and its emphasis on understanding and knowledge and knowing and theory and intellect and concepts, is that we we can get into a lot of, it can be, become so complicated. And the teachings of the Buddha sound really complicated. If somebody is coming straight out of you know, some other life, they've never heard any of this, and they were to come in to listen to some of these talks, they'd just go like, forget it. You know? <laughs> this is you know, how that is over my head, too much. It's really, I think, essential for us to allow in these words, these teachings, and let them resonate and let them go through. And some of them will go in and out and we don't know what will happen to that information. And not to try and hang on to everything that's said and try and figure it all out. Especially when something's being spoken about that's too confusing. Because then we just end up not... That stops us. It stops us from just going ahead and practicing. We need a certain amount of understanding and we won't practice, but we don't need to get hung up with, I don't understand this, I don't understand that, too much. A little bit, but not too much. Somebody's already quoted this in one of the talks, but I quote it again because I love this, Rumi, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field, I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. That's a state that we experience when ideas and language make no sense anymore. But when we're not in that field, struggling to try and understand what does that mean can just be a problem, can be a spanner in the works. When it's understood, it's understood. When it isn't, it isn't. Can we allow ourselves to be in the mystery of not knowing? 
to be open and curious without having to figure it out. The tendency of the mind, the way we behave, is subject-object, is the dual reality. I like you. That goes into I want to know the answer to the question. This practice is less than that. It's more curious, wondering. It's not having to know answers. It's more about asking questions. Are we able to ask questions and just be with what is and see what comes from that? But our tendency is to try and figure stuff out so that we can get it together so that we then think we can then carry on. This is, we, we can't do it that way. It isn't a figuring out and getting answers. It's a wondering and keeping looking. And the Buddha, you know, when he was in, you know, assailed by endless questions, which he was his whole life, no doubt. Some of the questions people asked him, he called imponderables. You know, this, whether or not the, the Tagaka will, is there any existence after he has died? Is there any, is there a future? Miscellaneous questions. He just said, this is not helpful for freedom to ponder these imponderables. And so I'm not going to answer. And sometimes he just wouldn't even speak. People would ask a question and he would just remain silent, knowing that if he answered in a certain way, somebody would believe something that wasn't quite right. And if he answered in another way, they'd believe it in the opposite way. And he said that would just confuse people, so there's no point. We can't figure this stuff out. We can't think ourselves free. We can't think ourselves awakened, or we would all be awakened, wouldn't we? with all this much sincerity and all this being here, with all the diligence and curiosity that you're doing, it doesn't work this way. It's not an intellectual pursuit. It's not conceptual. We can't puzzle it out, particularly with the apparatus that belongs to the stuck one, this problem-solving device, which is very handy when we want to light the fire or you know, harvest the food, but it's limited. So there's very often, and we live in this gap between what we actually know and what we think we know, what our head can tell us and what we've incorporated. And there are times in practice, of course, you will ask this, and, you know, I know this well, what does this mean? I've had this experience. What does this mean? Where am I in this peculiar territory? It can get dangerous if you start finding, wanting to know stages of this and understandings of that because immediately we get into the mind thinking, is this this? Am I this? Does this mean this? Of course the mind works that way. So it's this very tricky area. Can we talk about and explain an experience? Can we explain an experience that you haven't had to you? You have your experience. That's what you know. So we seem to be avoiding some of the deep truths, but how can you put them into words when they're an experience? We need enough understanding to practice. To turn our, to give us enough faith that the process is meaningful, valuable, brings some clarity, 
leans us towards the light, as Barry Lopez says. And then we have to go into the mystery of it all. Francis Bacon, if a man will begin with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he will be content to begin with doubts, he shall end in certainties. Here's a little story I want to tell you. This is, this is about what you think you know and actually what you do know. If you were told that you, know, you were going to go somewhere outside and you were going to find, um, you were going to be able to experience the most, one of the most brilliant um, artists of our era, a musician playing some of the most profound and difficult and well-loved music of our era for free, just on your way to work. You'd think that you would soak some of it up. But what actually happened a year ago in Washington, D.C., 7.30 in the morning on a Friday in a metro station, rush hour for 43 minutes, was the ninth most, or something like this, talented violinist in the world called Joshua Bell. This is a little experiment that was put on by um, the Washington Post as an experiment in context, perception, and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste. (laughs) In a banal setting at an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend, it's called. So it was rush hour, Friday morning. So this, this uh, musician, Joshua Bell, he, at the, he's now 40, he was 39. He's tall, dark, and handsome with a glossy, shaggy mane of hair. He was a one-time child prodigy, and he's an internationally acclaimed virtuoso. He got his first music lessons when he was four years old because his parents, who were both psychologists, decided formal training might be a good idea after they saw that their son had strung rubber bands across his dresser drawers and was replicating classical tunes by ear, moving drawers in and out to vary the pitch. (laughs) He's a very engaging performer because he's a passionate performer and he uses his whole body his tall, handsome body. I've never seen him, by the way. I'm just (laughs) telling you the story. (laughs) He almost dances with his instrument, it is said, and his hair flies. And uh, His playing does nothing less than tell human beings why they bother to live, somebody says. Anyway, um, he also happens to own a Stradivarius violin, which was made in 1713 by Antonio Stradivari, who has never been bettered as far as making violins. And this particular violin, Joshua Bell said, he made this to perfect thickness at all parts. If you shaved off a millimeter of wood at any point, it would totally imbalance the sound. And it cost him $3.5 million. And he went to this engagement in this experiment by taxi two blocks just because of his $3.5 million violin. He didn't want to walk two blocks carrying it. No violins sound as wonderful as Stradivarius do, still from the 1710s. Anyway, so he went, and the experiment was to see if he would be appreciated. What happened was, in four to three minutes of playing, the most beautiful music ever written, some people think, with probably the most valuable instrument, seven people stopped. One 
in the last two minutes recognized him. Although not everyone, you know, was going to be knowing about classical musicians, but these were middle-level bureaucrats, a lot of educated people. Twenty-seven people gave him some money in his violin case, which totaled $32.17. They had made a bet at the Washington Post that it would be an average of maybe $300 that he would get. $32.17 some pennies. He commands on average over $1,000 a minute when he's actually playing in you know, concerts. That meant 1,070 middle-level bureaucrats didn't stop, walked right by. He was very loud. He says it's an extraordinary loud instrument. It was very shocking for him because you know, he normally, if somebody's cell phone goes off, he's very irritated and you know, <laughs> he learned a few things about himself in it. There was only one um, demographic of people who actually 100% noticed him. There were young, old, children, white, black, Asian, you know, every kind of person there. The only ones who every single one of 100% of them stopped to listen if they could were the children, but none of them could because they were all pulled on by their busy parents. Anyway, if you had been... They videoed this and then they contacted people afterwards and said, did you know what you just, you know, and people were were so preoccupied with their agenda of the day, they missed entirely this particular opportunity. We think we, we think we know, we think we're wise. We're not often as wise as we think. So we can't get faith and we can't get confidence from the outside. Somebody can tell you till they're blue in the face to trust something. But until you actually have it from the inside, it isn't actually yours. It's got to be from your own experience. I have a story that I sometimes tell of a, one of my clients, midwife clients, who um, had no confidence in her ability to deliver this baby of hers. She was in labor, and her labor went on and on and on. It started at 2 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, and all day, all night, all day Monday, I left Monday morning, went and delivered. Somebody else's baby came back. She was still doing it. That didn't encourage her. And uh, Monday night, Tuesday, Tuesday night, so this is 48, 56, I don't know, hours later. It wasn't heavy, but it wasn't letting up either. She didn't know how to do it. She had lived her life up until this point pleasing. She actually had a father who wanted sons and had daughters, and she was the oldest of four daughters, and so she was always trying to be what she wasn't. And so she didn't have faith in what she was. She had always been playing somebody else's game. And when it came down to this, she didn't trust herself. And so she would, every time I came anywhere near her, which, of course, I did lots, she would say, is this okay? You know, is this, is this the right position? You know, is it, how is my breathing? And what, what do you think of, am I doing the, you know? And I realized that she didn't, wasn't using any of her own resources. She was trying to get them from me. And I had to stop making any suggestions. And I had to say, it's fine, whatever you do. Breathe how you like, move how you like, take whatever positions you like, make whatever sounds you like. It doesn't matter. Just do your thing. 
but she didn't know what that was. She didn't have that confidence. I ended up feeling mean because I'd go nearby her and she'd go like, mm, and I just wouldn't give her any information. It was like I was withholding some secret, but <laughs> it was hers to find. And uh, anyway, after I finally said, we can't go on too much longer because you're going to get really too run down and you've still got the hard work of the main labor and the delivering the baby. So, it's, you know, you need some sleep and either it's going to move or we're going into the hospital. I gave her an hour time limit, one minute before the hour is up. This great passionate groan comes from this back bedroom. And, you know, her partner is thinking like, oh, my God, we've better go to the hospital because finally she's sounding like this is really heavy. And I'm going like... <laughs> it's like she, she didn't know how to even find the key, let alone put it in the lock. And finally, after I'd sort of withdrawn all external information, she found her own way. Mostly when she, you know there's that, or you're not going to be able to do it, and she did fine. And she had another baby two years later, easily, in a straightforward way. It's like a piece of her hadn't she hadn't figured out, and you have to. It has to come from your own experience. So what we trust and what we understand in this awakening process has to come from our own experience. Our wisdom is our own experience. So we may know something, learn, understand, ex have things explained to us. Then we ponder. Then we explore, what does this mean for me? The Buddha said, Ehi Pasiko, come and see for yourself. Not just come and see. Come and see and apply this for yourself and see if this is helpful. If it's helpful, carry on. If it's not helpful, don't. Make it your experience. So that's what we need to do. Understand a certain amount and then practice with it. Be with it. Ponder ourselves. What's going on? How does this work? So things are always changing. Ponder. Is this so? What does this mean? What is this like? What is the effect of this? Being close to and exploring the reality in our experience. Not theory. Not to explain it to somebody. Kalama Sutta, the Buddha says, do not be satisfied with hearsay or with tradition or with legendary lore or with what has come down in scriptures of the conjecture or with logical inference or with weighing evidence or with liking for a view after pondering over it or with someone else's ability or with the thought, the monk is our teacher. When you know in yourselves these things are wholesome, blameless, commended by the wise, and being adopted and put into effect, they lead to welfare and happiness. Then you should practice and abide in them. Not otherwise. Not, not put them into practice, but then live them. Practical. The Buddha was utterly practical. We explore, we inquire not trying to find answers, but for familiar, familiarity, to become intimate with our experience, maybe in terms of, referenced by, is this hanging me up? Is this a hindrance? That kind of questioning. But what does that mean for me? Not to explain, but to be with, to allow, to explore. We look when we look, we see. When we see, we apply. We learn by realizing. Then we trust something. Then we have faith and wisdom. It's understood. 
as a real experience and we trust it. There's faith and there's understanding together. So there's both this probing. Somebody, I heard a teacher recently talk about there's a mind which is this probing mind, this sort of, what's this, the exploratory kind of mind, but not trying to figure out, not so far, but just that delicate exploration mind. And there's also the allowing, receiving. Let's see what this is like. Hmm. Looking and receiving both. So that's why right in the beginning of our instructions, in the beginning of any practice period, we want to be curious, we want to be receptive, we want to be persistently curious and receptive, we want to be present. As we do, that's how we practice. This is what mindfulness is. A probing, exploratory, curious mind so we can have some understanding and then some faith, some trust. As these understandings reveal themselves in our experience. We use the word revelation. Awakening isn't a figuring out, it's a revelation. That's reliable and trustworthy. The middle way, both doing and being, both looking and asking and then allowing and receiving whatever is discovered. Questions, not answers. Krishnamurti. Man cannot come to truth through any organization, through any creed, through any dogma, priest, or ritual, not through any philosophic knowledge or psychological technique. He has to find it through the mirror of relationship through the understanding of the contents of his own mind, through observation, not through intellectual analysis or introspective dissection. Meditation is an intensification of the mind, which is in the fullness of silence. The mind is not still like some tamed, frightened, or disciplined animal. It is still as the waters are still, many fathoms down. Howie read this poem to you, so I'm not going to read it all to you again, but it's the Doha, the uh, song about happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxing and letting go. And there's a line in here I want to highlight. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. Wanting to know and figure out and get. It's exhausting. We need a certain trusting and having faith so that realization can dawn in us not because of our efforts to figure out, but because of our willingness to keep looking. Coleman Marx, in his um, book called The Essential Rumi, There are two kinds of intelligence. One acquired as a child in school memorizes facts and concepts from books and from what the teachers say. Collecting information from the traditional sciences as from the the new sciences. With such intelligence, you rise in the world. You get ranked ahead or behind others in regard to your competence in retaining information. You stroll with this intelligence in and out of fields of knowledge, getting always more marks on your preserving tablet. 
Yet there is another kind of tablet, one already completed and preserved inside you, a spring overflowing its spring box, a freshness in the center of the chest. This other intelligence does not turn yellow or stagnate. It's fluid, and it doesn't move from outside to inside through the conduits of plumbing learning. This second knowing is a fountainhead from within you moving out. So I'd like to leave you with a John O'Donoghue poem. It's called Brianacht. On the day when the weight, and I'd also like to say this is not just a poem I'm reading to you, but it's a wish I'm giving you, wishing for you. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may, oh, I have to always start this again. I do this every single time I read this poem and forget for some reason. There's a word in here which I just want to make sure you understand what it is, a curragh. It's the um, Celtic word for a coracle, which is an Irish boat, a little old-fashioned boat made of, it's a circular boat, extraordinarily thing. Um, it's um, hazel saplings woven together in a frame over which is stretched. It used to be hide, and the more modern version would be canvas. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the grey window and the ghost of loss gets into you, may a flock of colours, indigo, red, green and azure blue, come to awaken in you a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays in the curragh of thoughts, and a stain of ocean blackens beneath you, may there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. May the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.